Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 10th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, still unable to shake off Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this is the final part of the Back to School special for fall 2016. We hope you enjoy it. A great welcome back to Nick Bagley, who is Professor of Law at Michigan Law at the University of Michigan, where he uh, teaches and writes in the areas of administrative law, regulatory theory, and, of course, health law. Welcome back, Nick. And tell tell our listener where you are. Uh, I currently am in Geneva. I'm on sabbatical this year and spending some time uh, at the World Health Organization working on a couple of projects on drug pricing and antibiotic resistance. The listener and I are jealous. <laughs> and also a big welcome back to Elizabeth Weeks-Leonard, who is the J. Alton Hosh Professor of Law at Georgia Law, which is at the University of Georgia. Hello, Liz. Good afternoon. Nick, what should we be teaching this year? What should we be teaching this year? One of the things that's both wonderful and frustrating about being a health law professor is that there's always something new, which means your case notes can never keep up. Um, But that does make it exciting, and it does keep us on our toes. I have a few things that I think I'm watching this coming year in health law. The first is the ongoing litigation in House against Burwell. Um, The lawsuit arrived out of a dispute between the House of Representatives and the Obama administration over what seems like a pretty arcane appropriations issue, but what could have very important implications for the future of the ACA. Um, At issue in the case is, well, well, bring you back, when you buy a health plan on the exchange, you get help uh, financially if uh, if, if your income is low enough in two different ways. First, you get premium tax credits to help you cover the cost of premiums on the exchanges. And the second is you get these cost-sharing reductions. And these cost-sharing reductions are meant to defray the out-of-pocket spending for people making between 133 and 250% of the poverty line. So the, the poorest of the people who are on the exchanges. And the reason that we have these cost-sharing reductions is because the exchange plans have very high out-of-pocket spending requirements for their enrollees. You have very high deductibles, very high cost-sharing, and the like. So those people at the bottom end of the income spectrum would have a tough time affording their out-of-pockets payments without some help. So the Affordable Care Act quite explicitly appropriates the money for the premium tax credits. The trouble and the the sort of litigation-provoking problem here is that the Affordable Care Act does not explicitly appropriate the money for the cost-sharing reductions. And this is a problem because under the U.S. Constitution, the federal government can't pay out any money except pursuant to an appropriation by Congress. And by statute, those appropriations have to be specifically stated. They have to be quite clear in law. And there's actually a lot of law that's developed around what counts as an appropriation. And the trouble is, is the law requires a pretty high degree of precision about uh, when Congress appropriates money. And the Affordable Care Act doesn't speak with that kind of precision. So initially, the Obama administration said, well, gosh, darn it, we don't, you know, there's no appropriation in the Affordable Care Act for the cost sharing reduction. So we'll do what we normally do when we need money from Congress. We'll ask Congress for an appropriation. Congress, because it is so upset about the Affordable Care Act and controlled by Republicans that wish to dismantle it, said, go pound sand. Uh, The Republican uh, Congress said that we're not going to appropriate a dime 
for the cost-sharing reductions. So the Obama administration went back to the sort of White House and to the, the OMB and the Treasury Department, and they put their heads together and they said, well, can we, can we read the Affordable Care Act to maybe... Um, you know, to see if maybe we can construe it a little creatively to to create an appropriation for these cost-sharing payments. And they thought about it some, and they thought about it some, and ultimately came up with a theory, a fairly convoluted theory, for why it is that the Affordable Care Act appropriated the money for these cost-sharing reductions. Um, when it did so, it started paying out the cost-sharing reductions, making the payments that helped people afford their out-of-pocket spending. So this has helped the exchanges to get up off the ground. It's helped a lot of people afford their coverage, um, but it has incensed the Republican-controlled Congress. Uh, and so the House of Representatives, a couple of years ago, uh, decided that what they would do, since they couldn't win this issue politically, what they would do is file a lawsuit. And so the House of Representatives sued the Obama administration in federal court in Washington, D.C. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, can they do that? Can you know one House of Congress really sue the administration over an appropriations dispute? And the answer actually in law seems to be no, they really can't. These sorts of appropriations disputes arise from time to time between the executive branch and the Congress. And historically, we've resolved those appropriations disputes through interbranch negotiations. And those kinds of negotiations had broken down here, but that doesn't mean that a lawsuit is the appropriate next step. So the Obama administration said what lots of people said they should say, which is, hey, district court, you should dismiss this case because the House of Representatives lacks standing to bring it. To a lot of observers' surprise, the House, the district court last year in September said, you know, I think the House of Representatives has standing. And the district court's decision, frankly, doesn't make a great deal of sense. It's difficult to defend on its own terms, and it's very hard to square with existing precedent. But I think what explains the district court's willingness to hear the lawsuit uh, is her eventual conclusion on the merits. So uh, earlier this year, the district court ruled that, in fact, the Obama administration had violated the appropriations clause by dipping into the federal treasury in the absence of an appropriation. And the district court thus uh, uh, would have enjoined the administration from making those uh, cost-sharing payments, but she has stayed her opinion pending appeal. Um, the decision from the district court was explosive. If the decision does stand on appeal, it would seriously hamper the Affordable Care Act going forward for a variety of reasons that I can go into, but it would essentially make the exchanges much more expensive. It would actually increase the uh, federal outlays overall. It would make the markets work less well. Um, but be that as it may, the administration has appealed the decision, seeking to overturn it. Um, the stay is in place, so for right now, nothing changes on the ground, but I think a lot of observers are going to be watching is the D.C. Circuit. Here's the appeal in this case, probably sometime later this year. And, uh, you know, a decision is expected. You know, it's really hard to estimate with precision, but, but give or take maybe in, in March of this coming year, perhaps even earlier. I have a, a dim memory, Nick, of, of when uh, King and Burwell was first filed. And I remember thinking, come on, there's nothing there. What are you, what are you kidding me? Um, and, and how wrong I was, even though it sort of turned out correctly in the end. You who are a, a, a much uh, better reader of, a uh, close reader of statutes than I am, uh, saw the problem a little earlier. Is this a similar kind of thing that would, that uh, maybe the, the standing issue doesn't sort of strike us at the moment as for real, but uh, as it, as it sort of gathers steam through, 
often a politicized uh, appellate system, uh, we, we might see some bad news. So it's a great question. Um, you know, standing doctrine is notoriously malleable. So if you had a motivated court, I think the court could potentially get to yes. The existing case law, such as it is, strongly suggests that the answer is and ought to be no. In historical practice, where we've never seen a lawsuit like this between a House of Congress and the president, uh, strongly suggests the answer is no. But but sure, you know, law can change and standing doctrine uh, can be used to, can, can be, can, can change, can, can shift with the times. Um, I don't think that's especially likely to happen here for a couple of reasons. First, at the D.C. Circuit, um, there are a lot of Obama appointees uh, and a lot of Democratic-appointed nominees. Uh, scratch that. Um, but I don't think that's likely to happen for a couple of reasons. First, the D.C. Circuit is at this point, dominated by judges who were appointed by Democratic presidents. Um, and I don't think that the, those judges view these cases in explicitly political terms, but I don't think those judges are especially likely to be motivated to make new law to find that the House of Representatives has standing here, especially given the implications of a holding that would shift appropriations disputes from uh, you know disputes between the political branches into the courtroom. Um, that would be a, an immense challenge change in, in U.S. practice. Um, the second reason I think that it's unlikely to, to, that we're not likely to, this case doesn't have legs, is that I have to remember that standing doctrine is really a Republican project. You know, the the justice who is most closely associated with the development of standing doctrine is Justice Scalia. And so there are a lot of judges who are committed to the principle that courts have um, narrow responsibility in our, in our constitutional system. And I think they're going to be committed to that, even in a case where they might be sorely tempted on the merits um, to reach out and decide the case. Um, you know, so I think I think this case doesn't go anywhere at the D.C. Circuit. It, you know, you could pull a, a tough panel and there could be a panel decision that goes the wrong way. But I think ultimately on banc, the court cleans it up. The wild card here is, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, right now, I think it's very difficult to count to five. I think even if um, Donald Trump were elected and appointed uh, a justice of his own stripes, whatever those stripes might be, um, I think we're still going to be hard-pressed to get to five. Chief Justice Roberts, uh, for example, cares a great deal about standing doctrine. Um, um, but it is possible. Um, and I should say that the district court's ruling here, I think, reflects her own um, frustration with what she sees as a pretty uh, extraordinary uh, effort by the Obama administration to get around the limitations of the Appropriations Clause. And I think that kind of frustration could motivate judges down the line as well. So there is some uncertainty, but I don't look at this as another sort of king against Burwell. I think this one, this case is, is much less likely to go anywhere, but time will tell. I just had one sort of big picture question. Uh, looking back at these uh, lawsuits, I was recently reviewing Koppelman's uh, book, The Tough Luck Constitution, you know, and so looking at some of the early constitutional litigation over the ACA. And overall, do you think that these are areas where better drafting could have helped? Well, I guess focusing on this case, could better drafting have helped avoid these types of challenges? Or is this something that really nobody in Congress could have reasonably foreseen this type of uh, challenge getting as far as it did? No. So 
this is a case where I think drafting the, 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 the difficult process of getting the Affordable Care Act over the goal line may well have made a big difference. And, and I contrast that a bit with King against Burwell. In King, the textual problem was fairly difficult to spot. It was kind of buried in a nook in a corner of the Internal Revenue Code. You had to read it 17 times to make sense of it. I think even a competent drafter may well have missed it, even if the process had been less harried than it was. This, I think, may be more, and it's hard to know for certain, maybe more of a, maybe we can say, you know what, the process actually was problematic here. And I say that because the Affordable Care Act, of course, was adopted, um, never went through a conference committee. And what I mean by that is that when it was adopted, initially it was passed by the Senate with 60 votes. And then Ted Kennedy died and Scott Brown was reelected to take his place. The thought was that Instead, that they still that the Democrats, because they had 60 votes in the Senate, would be able to vote on a conference committee bill that merged the House version of the Affordable Care Act with the Senate version of the Affordable Care Act. In that conference committee, members of the executive branch who are experts on appropriations law would have been going through the act with a fine-toothed comb to make sure that there was the relevant appropriations language. And they would have done that because they know that these are the kinds of problems that can arise with big, complex pieces of legislation. And I think, although I can't be certain, that the absence of an explicit appropriation for the cost-sharing reductions would have caught their eye. This is one of the major spending provisions of the act, and it would have been a, 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 a an opportunity in the conference committee to get that cleaned up. Now, again, I can't be certain, but I, I, I sort of surmise that might have been the case. When Scott Brown was reelected, there was no chance to bring it before a conference committee because the Senate, now with 59 votes in, just 59 votes in Democratic hands, the Senate couldn't have overcome a, a Republican filibuster. So the House of Representatives had to adopt the exact same Affordable Care Act and then pass this reconciliation sidecar, and the act never really got cleaned up. So when you ask, frankly, could this have been avoided by better drafting? I think the answer is maybe yes, but I don't think it's better drafting in the sense that somebody made a slip of the pen. I think it may have been um, a function of a process that was especially difficult in our hyperpolarized environment with a very controversial piece of legislation. Well, now we'd like to move forward with another repeat guest of the show. We always love to hear from Elizabeth Weeks Leonard. And so, Elizabeth, would you like to give our listeners a sense of what you believe should be on health law syllabi in fall 2016 that may not have been there in fall 2015? Thanks, uh, Frank and Nick. And Nick, it's a delight to be here again with you all. Um, And your question about what should uh, folks be teaching in a fall health law class is a little bit of a loaded question for me because I've just finished a new health law casebook with um, Nicole Huberfeld, also a, 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 a repeat Twill guest and um, Kevin Outerson at Boston University. So if you really want to know what to teach this fall, take a look at our casebook. But I did want to emphasize today, um, particularly um, some, some recent developments in the fraud and abuse area. And I want to first just put in a plug for making sure that instructors do include a robust coverage of fraud and abuse in their syllabi, and we've done so in our casebook. I think sometimes those topics fall to the end of the semester. They're complex. Um, Students are um, somewhat exhausted and intimidated by the time that portion of the course is reached. But it's really a critical, critical area of practice, and the one area that we find practitioners and the American Health Lawyers Association 
Association, whose guidelines we consulted in drafting our casebook, um, that they really want students to have um, some working knowledge of those essential topics. And so we've included a, a quite thorough chapter on the topic. Um, and the highlights that I wanted to hit today are three recent developments in fraud and abuse, particularly in um, with respect to the False Claims Act, which of course is the linchpin of, of most um, fraud and abuse claims. And the three highlights are, uh, are the three recent developments include the 60-day rule, um, a development under the Affordable Care Act, the Supreme Court's decision this summer in Universal Health Services versus United States ex-relator Escobar, and then finally, very recent um, rulemaking that um, has essentially doubled the civil monetary penalties available for a False Claims Act violation. And I'll take each of those three developments in turn, starting first with the 60-day rule. The 60-day rule arises out of a, a longstanding provision of the False Claims Act that um, we call the reverse false claims, providing that liability under that statute can attach not only only with a, uh, an affirmative claim or false statement, but also, also with knowingly or improperly avoiding or decreasing an obligation to pay. So not speaking um, in a way that is, makes a misrepresentation to the government, in addition to speaking in a way that makes a misrepresentation to the government. Again, False Claims Act attaches to claims for payment from the government, so tied in the healthcare space to Medicare and Medicaid. Well, under the Affordable Care Act, that longstanding reverse claims provision of the False Claims Act was um, given added teeth with a provision that is a uh, provides for that m providers must within 60 days of the date on which an overpayment was identified, they must report that overpayment and return any amounts overpaid to the government. And the Affordable Care Act sets this 60 day clock for compliance. Well, that rule itself um, raises the stakes significantly under the reverse false claims provision, essentially putting providers um, to the task of, of looking for these overpayments and acting very quickly to make a return of the of the overpayment to the government or risk the full gamut of potential um, false claims act sanctions, which include not only the civil monetary penalties, which I'll talk about as my third item, but also treble damages and, and other potential administrative sanctions, including exclusion from the Medicare and Medicaid programs and, and other, um, other possibilities. Well, so the statute, the Affordable Care Act, provided this um, provision, the 60-day rule, but left undefined some key terms, including what it means to say that an overpayment is was identified. At what point would the 60-day clock be triggered? Well, this past February in, of 2016, after four years of waiting um, from between the proposed and final rule, we got some clarification from the agency. In the interim, there had been about 200 comments submitted on this proposed rule, as well as some judicial interpretation, trying to um, glean out what this key term um, identified and some other provisions or other key terms of the 60-day rule. The final rule issued in February basically clarifies what we already suspected, which is that providers, um, that, that providers are compelled to be both not only reactive, but also proactive in their efforts to identify these potential overpayments. It's not sufficient for a provider 
simply to set up a hotline and wait for um, the a potential overpayment to be um, pointed out to them. They also have to take proactive steps to begin to identify these billing irregularities um, ahead of time. So the, the final rule affirms that point, that providers cannot just sit back and wait for problems to come to their attention. They also have to engage in, in robust um, self-audit and compliance measures, which many providers already were doing, but but again, the, the compulsion to do so now under the 60-day rule is greater. This final rule also clarified, however, that providers have actually, as it, if you add it up, eight months to comply rather than just two months or 60 days to comply. And that's because the final rule provides essentially a six-month due diligence period after which which begins once the provider becomes aware of or on notice that there may be a potential irregularity. It gives them this six-month period of time to, to do some digging, to actually quantify those amounts, and then to make the report and um, the return overpayment within two months. So essentially an eight-month period, the six months of due diligence plus the, the statutory two months to report and return. So that's somewhat more favorable than some of the interim um, case law and also the proposed rule, which provides that um, action must be taken with all deliberate speed. And some of the, the interim case law said that as soon as a provider was on notice that has had any um, inkling that there was an irregularity that the 60-day clock began to run. Um, so that part of the final rule is somewhat more helpful to providers. And then a third um, um, important piece of the final rule is that the trigger for identified does seem to include some quantification, not just a, a, a broad sense of a possible billing irregularity or a billing problem, but actually a quantified amount. But again, that six-month period is the time during which the provider should make that quantification. So the upshot with the final rules on the 60-day rule under the Affordable Care Act is that it's a little bit softer than the proposed rule that came out four years earlier, and also a little bit softer than some of the interim case law. Um, defining the this key term identified as requiring reasonable diligence over a six-month period, um, plus the quantification, and um, and requiring um, that, uh, but again, requiring some of these proactive steps as well. So the 60-day rule, and I think that one may be already um, likely on, on folks' radar screens. I tend to use a lot of speakers in my fraud and abuse class and each and every one of them mentioned the 60-day rule is something that they are very um, focused on as practitioners. So that's uh, recent development number one. The second topic that I wanted to hit on is the Supreme Court's um, decision this summer in Universal Health Services versus Escobar. And this decision, it's a False Claims Act case that makes it to the Supreme Court. And um, the court took the case to decide a long-standing circuit split on the question of the viability of the implied false certification theory. Um, and there was a split with some differing interpretations within that split among the lower courts. The case that the course took, the Universal Health Services case, was a First Circuit case um, arising out of Massachusetts. It involved a mental health provider 
and the case was brought by parents of a patient of this mental health provider, and the patient had died of a seizure while under care of the provider. The parents brought a False Claims Act case under the, the False Claims Act whistleblower Ketam Relator provision, and their allegation of how the provider was violating the False Claims Act is that they were submitting claims for payment under Medicaid for providers, for workers at the mental health center who were not properly licensed or supervised consistent with state law. And so the allegation was that this non-compliance with state law constitutes a non-compliance with Medicaid, and therefore any claims submitted by that provider that included that state non-compliance were false within the meaning of the False Claims Act. And so to be clear, these claims that the provider was submitting were claims for government payment under the Medicaid program. And there was nothing in the the payment in those claims that expressly certified that providers had to be in compliance with state regulations. But the the relator's theory was that as was under implied false certification. Essentially, implied cert- false certification most broadly writ means that any regulatory non-compliance under a particular government health care program constitutes a false claim. So it has the potential, the implied false certification theory has the potential to turn any garden variety, run-of-the-mill, daily, routine, regulatory compliance issue into a False Claims Act um, case with, again, carrying the, the very steep sanctions that are available under that statute. Well, with respect to this claim brought by the patient's family, um, the the Massachusetts, the trial court in Massachusetts, essentially dis- dismissed the claim um, under uh, 12B6, a failure to state a claim. Um, so they granted the defendant's um, dis- uh, motion to dismiss. The First Circuit reversed and held that this implied false certification theory was viable. The trial court had suggested otherwise. But the First Circuit required a parsing of dis- Distinguishing between what are what it terms and what other circuits have termed conditions of participation under government healthcare programs as distinguished from conditions of payment. And only those conditions of payments could support an implied false certification theory. Conditions of participation would not. The Supreme Court took the case. Justice Thomas wrote for a unanimous court in this opinion. And like the First Circuit, did allow that the implied false certification theory is viable. That w- that's the basic take home from the case. And the analysis in the case works off of, um, somewhat to my surprise, more off of common law fraud doctrine rather than these finer tuned um, distinctions under Medicare and Medicaid rules as the First Circuit opinion um, would have. So the court notes, and consistent with common law fraud, that that we do extend liability under those doctrine for misrepresentations, for half truths. This isn't a stretch um, in the in the realm of fraud, and and similarly in the False Claims Act, those sorts of claims um, should be um, viable. But the Supreme Court did give some limits. Um, so not every regulatory noncompliance constitutes a false claims. The act is not intended to be some sort of blanket um, way of enforcing compliance with all state and federal regulations. The court offers some limits. One is that the claim for payment that supports a false claims act um, case is cannot be just a merely a naked claim for payment, but must include some specific representation 
representations about the goods and services provided. So again, this notion, this idea of of a, of a uh, half truth that there's some statement about the goods and services being provided, but there's some omitted statement about oh, but actually this particular law we weren't in compliance with, or these particular providers were not perhaps fully licensed by the state. So that giving rise to this common law notion of misrepresentation or half truth. The second limit that the court um, provided in allowing an implied false claims uh, uh, an implied false claims act um, theory is really emphasizing the materiality standard under the false claims act and in an earlier round of litigation and, and lower court discussion, there was some split over whether materiality was an element of the False Claims Act. We eventually resolved that by statute and held that it was. And materiality essentially is is um, a require it, it's an element of the claim that says it's not enough simply that the provider submit a false claim and that the claim and that the payment that the government pays the claim, but materiality links those two so that that the false statement must be what motivates the government to make the payment. I've explained it um, to students previously as being akin to causation in tort law, that it's not enough that a um, a defendant breached the applicable standard of care and that the plaintiff suffer an injury, but the, bre- the breach much, must actually cause the injury. It's a similar notion here. And so the court in limiting the implied false certification theory emphasizes this materiality element um, and clarifies that it means some it must be that the false statement or the um, implied false statement in this case is outcome determinative meaning that it actually would that the government would not merely could withhold payment on the basis of the false statement and then the third limit or fourth third limit that the court offers um, is it is rejecting the the first circuit's insistence on labels this condition of participation versus condition of payment that parsing is not determinative for the supreme court um, instead they suggest a more fact intensive inquiry but not turning on the particular labels that the government uses and pointing out that were that the test then it would be very simple for the government simply to label every regulation um applicable to the Medicare and Medicaid programs as conditions of payments and thereby um, but raise the stakes for implied false certification theories. Um, so the court gets away from that sort of um, from the labels and, and looks more towards the, the um, fact intensive nature of the, of the regulation at issue. And then finally, another longstanding and essential element of the False Claims Act, the scienter requirement, um, the knowing knows or should know or reckless disregard standard, the court also suggests that that remains an important limit on the potential expansive scope of the implied false certification theory. So again, kind of a mixed bag, I think, for providers under this decision. Um, In a perfect world, providers would like to see implied false certification have been rejected wholly as a theory. The court didn't do that, um, but did emphasize some existing limits and read them as, um, as as quite rigorous, and then also added some some additional limits on this particular theory, which um, may give providers some comfort. And we'll just have to wait and see how the lower courts um, interpret this. Again, as I've said, it, it seems to be a fairly fact-intensive inquiry. And despite the court's clarification and um, guidance, um, further case law development will will help us understand better the implications of this decision. And then my third development, uh, recent development in the false 
in the uh, fraud and abuse area specific to the False Claims Act is the doubling of the civil monetary penalties available under the False Claims Act. Prior to this summer and very and um, the penalties available for False Claims Act violations, the civil monetary penalties were specified at a minimum of $5,500 per claim and a maximum of $11,000 per claim. And that update was last made in 1999. Prior to that update, it was slightly lower, um, $5,000 and and $10,500 were the minimum and maximum. Well, now the new rule says that the minimum civil monetary penalty under the False Claims Act is $10,781 per claim, and the maximum is $21,563 per claim. So again, a doubling, a a 198% increase in the civil monetary penalties. And civil monetary penalties, or CMPs, are really significant, especially not just for healthcare providers, but for all government contractors, but especially for healthcare providers and other government contractors who operate on a a volume business, because these claims attach on a per-claim basis. Um, Each sheet of code, um, each claim submitted to the government for healthcare services, um, can this amount of penalty can attach to those. This doubling, which seems quite shocking, um, is actually a long overdue inflation update. As I mentioned, the last update to the penalties was in 1999. Um, So this has been long coming, but nevertheless, to have the increase made all at one time in this year is quite dramatic. These updates, um, these new penalties were um, provided in an interim final rule, um, construing a 2015 federal statute, which amended a 1990 um, statute. And the way that the agency construed the statute is that it required this 198% increase. Um, CMS also followed, or rather the Department of Justice in this case, followed another agency, the Railroad Retirement Board, um, which had issued a similar update um, to the same amount with respect to False Claims Act penalties um, under its program. So interim final rule, there are 60 days um, from June 30th when the rule was issued to um, to make comment, I don't expect um, that the agency will pull back from this these um, announced changes in any dramatic way. Um, assuming that the rule stands, these new penalties will be apply to any penalties assessed after August 1st, um, so already as of now, and for violations occurring anytime after November 2nd of 2015. So the implications of this change, again, obviously dramatically raising the stakes for government contractors, including healthcare providers, these larger amount of penalties and the and the um, the multiplying of them on a per claim basis may make um, healthcare fraud and abuse even more attractive than it already is to the whistleblower bar to the relator bar. Um, so that's certainly a significant implication of this change. Another is that um, states may follow this change in their own state false claims act um, provisions. A number of states, 29 in fact, have already 
under the Deficit Reduction Act of 2005 responded to an incentive included in that federal statute. Essentially, what the federal government said is that if states enact False Claims Act laws that are similarly rigorous to the federal statute, that they can receive a, a, a carrot, an add-on payment, an additional they could retain an additional 10% of any False Claims Act award collected. And so to retain that carrot, to continue to get that extra 10%, states presumably will need to update their False Claims Act um, civil monetary penalties to, to, to the same level as the federal statute. And another implication, not quite as significant, but at least an an HR burden is that a a human resources burden is that Medicaid providers are required to give notice to their employees, to contractors, to agents, to others who work about the the potential for the False Claims Act and liability related thereto, including the amount of penalties. So all of the um, notices and employee manuals and other material that would list that sort of information will have to be updated to reflect these um, these new amounts. Um, again, not a, a um, particularly mind-bending burden, but something that at least gives health lawyers um, some work to do over the next few months. So those are my three updates on the Fraud and Abuse and False Claims Act. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Um, that was really a terrific overview of some very important developments in that field. And I uh, am really looking forward to be reviewing your new casebook um, soon. Uh, I'm very excited to see a new entrant on the market. Certainly your coverage of uh, fraud and abuse issues um, <laughs> bodes well for a really clear and uh, comprehensible approach to some very complex uh, topics. I want to take the liberty here uh, to ask Nick if he could just add in one additional case to our coverage of back-to-school special issues. Um, this involves the 3R program. Yeah, well, it's actually a, a series of cases that are erupting around the 3Rs. So as you know, the 3Rs are a set of programs, two temporary and one permanent, that are designed to help stabilize the exchanges. So the idea was that when the exchanges were set up, health plans might be a little bit tentative about participating. So maybe offer them a way, some assurance that if they went on the exchanges, they wouldn't get totally clobbered. So the three programs are first, the risk corridor program, which essentially says that, look, if you really get clobbered on the exchanges, we're going to compensate you and take some of the, the edge, some of the sting out of that. And in exchange, those of you who go on the exchanges and you do much better than you expected, you're responsible for paying into a central kitty. Um, we've got the risk, uh, the, I'm sorry, the reinsurance program. The reinsurance program is a program that's designed to serve something like the same role. It's supposed to uh, support uh, health plans that lose more money than they anticipated on the exchanges. Um, both the risk, the risk corridor and the reinsurance programs are temporary. The third of the three R's is a program uh, known as risk adjustment. And this is meant to take care of the problem that arises when people are shopping for health plans and the health plans can't say no to people who are sicker than the average bear. Um, What that means is that some health plans are predictably going to get a sicker group of patients than other health plans. And yet they are all going to be competing against one another. And if you let that kind of competition occur, eventually the exchanges would collapse in on themselves. So what the risk adjustment program aims to do is to say, 
Okay, insurer X, you've got an especially unhealthy group of enrollees, so we're going to give you some extra cash. And it looks like you, insurer Y, have a much healthier group of enrollees than anticipated. So we'll we'll ask you to to hand over the cash to other insurers who have a, a less healthy risk pool. Taken together, all these three programs are meant to help stabilize the exchanges. As it's happened, the three R's have become a focal point for partisan fighting and now for litigation. The risk corridor program was derided early by Marco Rubio as a slush fund for insurers, notwithstanding the fact that the same kind of risk corridor program had been put in place by the Republicans when they established Medicare Part D back in 2003. But set that to one side, it became a a political football. And so Congress said, you know what, we're going to clip HHS's wings and make it impossible for HHS to make all of the risk corridor payments that HHS would otherwise make. What that meant is that insurers who'd been anticipating getting um, compensated because they were uh, they made less money in the exchanges than they expected ended up only getting uh, pennies on the dollar uh, in what they expected in risk corridor payments. Um, this was an especially big problem for the co-op plans that were established under the Affordable Care Act. They really depended on the risk corridor payments coming through. And when they didn't, many of those co-ops folded. When they folded, they said, you know what? This sucks. We are not happy about taking this kind of hit when Congress made us this promise to pay risk corridor money. And just because uh, Congress hasn't appropriated enough money to make these payments doesn't mean that we're not owed the money. So we're going to take you to court. And they filed right now to date, I think there are six separate lawsuits that have been filed in the Court of Federal Claims against the federal government saying, you made us a promise, make good on that promise. Um, And those lawsuits look like they are quite serious, um, that even HHS admits that there is an obligation uh, to make these payments, that these payments uh, will have to be made in some way at some point in time, and the litigation may be a way for the risk corridor, for the insurers to get what they're owed under the risk corridor program, even if Congress doesn't appropriate any new funds for that program. Um, there's a separate appropriations dispute that's quite arcane over the reinsurance program that has led to congressional hearings um, and has become a locus of real anger on the Republican side of the, the Congress. Um, in their view, the Obama administration is making reinsurance payments to insurers that it is improper, that, that, that it, it does not have the authority to make. Um, finally, the last kind of, of litigation that's erupting, and it's really quite recent, and I want to keep an eye on it as we go forward. There's been litigation over the risk adjustment program. This is the program that... um tries to even out the risk pools between the different insurers. And there have been some smaller insurers and especially some co-ops that have been frustrated about how risk adjustment has worked in practice. They feel like they've got enrollees that are sick, that they should be paid, they should be compensated for, but that the formula that HHS has devised for the risk adjustment program doesn't take doesn't allow them to take those sick enrollees into account. And so they filed suit under the APA saying that HHS's program is so badly designed, that it is arbitrary and capricious within the meaning of the law and should be struck down. Uh, To date, we've got two of those lawsuits that have been filed. Um, I've taken a look at them, and I think there is really nothing there. I don't think these lawsuits are going anywhere. But it's another manifestation of deep uh, frustration with many of the insurers that have been participating on the exchanges. Um, And that frustration is in part uh, uh, just, you know, the growing pains of any kind of new market. Remember this, these exchange markets didn't exist before the Affordable Care Act. But they're also a reflection of just how hard it is to get a healthy, 
well-functioning exchange up and running. Um, the, re, uh, the risk quarter programs and the reinsurance programs ended at the end of 2016. Uh, the exchanges going forward will be subject only to risk adjustment. Uh, time will tell whether that means that the exchanges in 2017 and 2000 going forward are more limited in the options that they can offer to enrollees, whether the prices for health plans go up as a result. But I think we can say that the road paved by the three R's has been rockier than the drafters of the ACA anticipated that it would be. Well, thank you both for uh, extraordinary uh, contributions to uh, this year's uh, special. I couldn't help uh, thinking as I was listening to you and indeed to some of our other uh, contributors uh, to this. Uh, wow. This ACA thing is complicated. I, I, I wonder if there'd been another way of doing it or something. But then today I read a jam piece, which uh, looked at the impact on the ACA in Kentucky and Arkansas with regard to Medicaid expansion and just has quite extraordinary increases in outpatient utilization, preventative care, and improved healthcare quality, reductions in emergency department use, and so on. So uh, I guess it is a good fight after all. Terrific perspective there, Nick. Thank you. With our great thanks to Nick Bagley, uh, please don't uh, don't decide to live in Switzerland. Come back and, and be with us. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you. And Liz, as always, thank you so much. Great contributions. My pleasure. Many, many thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, folks. For my contribution, I'm going to do something a little unfashionable and talk about state law, although I will end up with something federal uh, at the end. The story begins, at least for me, with a Charlie Ornstein uh, ProPublica story from a couple of years ago. It concerned a 75-year-old widow who, in 2012, had turned on her DVR to watch an episode of the ABC reality show New York Med that had been filmed at New York Presbyterian Hospital. A few minutes later, she realized she had just watched her husband die. In 2011, he'd been hit by a sanitation truck and taken to New York Presbyterian emergency room. The TV producers uh, who'd been filming there blurred out Mark Chanko's face and disguised his voice, but it was alleged enough remained to make him identifiable. The Chanko estate and family sued the ER doctor, the hospital, and ABC. We join the fray when a couple of surviving causes of action make their way up to New York's highest court for a March 2016 decision. The case is Chanko against American broadcasting companies. First, the Court of Appeals had to deal with a claim for breach of confidence against the physician and hospital. Now, initially, dear listener, note that the appellate court below had dismissed a confidentiality claim against ABC because of the lack of a confidential relationship between the TV companies company and the patient. As such, we never saw litigated the sort of inevitable First Amendment arguments uh, that presumably would have been ripened thereafter. As the healthcare providers, uh, New York has a state statute which codifies the physician-patient relationship and the duty of confidentiality. The court spelled out the elements of the claim, uh, the existence of a physician-patient relationship, the physician's acquisition of information relating to the patient's treatment or diagnosis, the disclosure of such confidential information to a person not connected with the patient's medical treatment uh, in a manner that allows the patient to be identified for lack of consent and fifth damages. Now, the defendant argued that the claim was predicated on the disclosure of embarrassing facts. The court disagreed, saying whether the confidentiality inherent in the fiduciary patient-physician-patient relationship is breached does not depend on the nature of the medical treatment or diagnosis. Our broad rule, the court says, protects all types of medical information and provides consistency, avoiding 
case-by-case -case determinations of what is considered embarrassing to any particular patient. What about damages? Well, it's early yet. And if we go to trial, um, there'll be more on this. Uh, plaintiffs at this stage hadn't seen the raw footage surrounding uh, the death of uh, Mark Chanko. So it was unclear who else was around the patient at the time and so on and so forth. So the court was happy that a cause of action had been stated here. And so on to the second issue, which went up to the Court of Appeals, whether there was an intentional infliction of emotional distress claim here against providers and against ABC. The court begins by saying, quote, the conduct at issue here, the broadcasting of a recording of a patient's last moments of life without consent, would likely be considered reprehensible by most people, and we do not condone it. Nevertheless, it was not so extreme and outrageous as to satisfy our exceedingly high legal standard. The footage aired by ABC was edited so that it did not include decedent's name, his image was blurred, and the episode included less than three minutes devoted to decedent and his circumstances. So a 50-50 uh, uh, split there uh, for uh, plaintiffs in the Court of Appeals. But there's more. The second shoe in the Chanko case dropped uh, one month after the decision by the New York Court of Appeals, or at least we think it was the Chanko case, although the patient uh, was never identified. The uh, issue here was a resolution agreement with HHS OCR by New York Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, this included a corrective plan and the payment of $2.2 million. HHS had alleged that the hospital impermissibly disclosed the PHI of two unidentified patients and also failed to safeguard uh, patients' uh, PHI during filming. Although not stated in the resolution agreement, the HHS press release referred to the disclosure as, quote, egregious disclosure of two patients' a PHI without first obtaining authorization from the patient and noted that filming continued even after a member of the care team urged the crew to stop. On a note here, I will likely ask my students how the New York Court of Appeals' outrageousness uh, differs from OCR's egregiousness uh, on this point. I guess it also suggests that hospitals are going to be extremely cautious uh, after uh, this uh, resolution agreement was published about allowing media to uh, act in any way uh, within their premises. Uh, now that I've crossed you over into HIPAA land, let me highlight a few other settlements from this year. First, OCR seems to be casting its covered entity net somewhat wider. So this year we have a settlement with a physical therapy provider that posted unauthorized patient testimonials on its website. There was also a 3.9 million settlement with a biomedical research institute that failed to secure the PHI of 13,000 research participants. The other trend I think you can detect this year is how OCR is beginning to take a hard look at business associates. So we've had a couple of cases that involve provider liability for failing to execute BAAs. And we also now have a $650,000 settlement with a BA for failing to protect uh, the PHI provided by its nursing home client. And of course, I couldn't go into HIPAA land and settlements uh, without mentioning the big one. Uh, just a very few days ago, uh, OCR beat its own dollar record with a $5.55 million settlement with Advocate Healthcare following allegedly multiple security breaches and the exposure of health and financial information of as many as 4 million patients. 
Along with these enforcement actions, uh, it is worth noting that this year we've seen uh, several new guidance notices from OCR that encourage data sharing and patient engagement. And as covered on Twill uh, previously, uh, guidance applying breach notification to ransomware. So from a teaching perspective, I guess if you put all of these pieces together, there are some pretty good teaching moments that come out. First, uh, Chanko does put a human face on privacy violations, but also gives you the opportunity to discuss when privacy violations really create damage, which I think is persistently an interesting question. Secondly, the different ways that the TV company and the healthcare providers were treated in the courts and by regulators uh, not only reinforces the health law narrative that healthcare is regulated differently from other businesses, but also how our privacy laws are sadly sectoral. Third, it's always worth pointing out that HIPAA notwithstanding, state common law claims involving privacy and security persist and are very important, particularly given that HIPAA does not have a private right of action. Fourth, both the confidentiality and IID claims in Chanko provide plenty of opportunity uh, for nice close doctrinal analysis in the classroom. And finally, uh, with the sobering note that there seems no end in sight for cyber attacks against healthcare providers, there surely is no longer any doubt about the growing reach and seriousness of HIPAA privacy and security enforcement. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A tremendous thank you to... A staggering array of guests who've joined us. Uh, thank you all. Uh, we will have details about them in the show notes, uh, uh, needless to say. Uh, those show notes are at twill.com. Uh, and if you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show, particularly this special show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where are you? Please reach me this week at HealthPI on Twitter. Well, thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting and healthy week. And uh, to all the health law teachers, out there and their students have a wonderful semester. Mm-hmm.